everybody, and welcome back to Sapphic Survival Guide, where we are happy to be queer to answer your questions. I'm Gina. And I'm Cheyenne. And class is now in session. Today is probably the most like an actual class because we are <laughs> going to be teaching you sapphic history. So this is a history class, um, part one of two, because we want to give you as many people as possible. But through some of our reading, we, of course, have not gathered every single sapphic person in history. But through some of our reading, we've taken a list of people who made an impact in some way in the world and are going to give you a little blurb on their story. Yeah, I'm so excited. Gina did most of the research for this one, and I like skimmed a few of them, but I'm going to be learning along with you all. So I'm excited to hear about these queers of of your one might say yeah the ones who paved the way for us so to speak all right so get out your notebooks we're gonna start going through some influential people in history first up is something called the golden orchid society so in ancient china women were allowed to take part in something called tu shi which translates to eating each other or moozing she, which is rubbing quote unquote mirrors. As long as they also showed the same affection to their husbands who now own them, they were allowed to take part in these acts. From 1644 to 1949 CE, the Golden Orchid Society was a community where women could go to avoid marrying men. Because the women were mostly all lesbians, so the relationships were obviously sexual. And when one woman wanted to marry another one, they would ask by offering them a peanut. The wedding would be followed by a massive female-only party, and the newly married couple could even adopt a daughter if they wanted to. Isn't that, like, so utopian? (laughs) Yeah, and then love. the patriarchy comes along at all. Right? right? Yeah, there are a few of these, uh, the ones that I researched that I was like, damn, I would love to see this movie. This is that's the period piece I want is right? this ancient China right here. This, yeah. this society. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the next one we have is about the Azandi women. During the first half of the 18th century, the Azandi men from Central Africa were worried because their wives were quote-unquote, so desperate for sex that they'd started having it with each other when their husbands were away. One man said that the wives would use something from their harvest, so that they'd either use, like, a banana or a sweet potato that they cut into, like, a phallic shape and tied those things to their waists as makeshift dildos. The Azandi men admitted that once a woman had been with another woman, it was difficult for them to stop doing it, especially because they weren't able to get the same amount of pleasure from their husbands. So, I, I mean, that. that's what happened to me. <laughs> Minus yeah, the husband. It's not wrong. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like one of the original strap-ons, too. So that's yeah. kind of hype. The, the mm-hmm. history of sex toys as well included in here. Yes. So this next person is pretty um, well known in the lesbian community because our our title of our podcast even comes from this person, and that is Sappho. Sappho was a singer-songwriter from the small Greek island of Lesbos 
who wrote about 10,000 lines of a verse in 630 BCE. And she enjoyed writing about the erotic love that she felt towards women. At first, people were excited about her poetry, but eventually she was exiled and was rumored to have run off with a man or have maybe jumped off a cliff and died. Uh, majority of Sorry, her work was like- I don't to laugh at that. Well, it's a, it's a rumor. So you don't know. Did she run off? Did she run off a right. cliff? Like, yeah, that people are just like, like where did she go? Down the lane. Right. Where'd, where'd Sappho go? And they were like, oh, she ran off with a man. And people were like, I don't think she ran off with a man. They're like, oh, she jumped off of a cliff and died. And people were like, well, that sounds what was more realistic? It? Yeah. <laughs> a majority of majority of her work was most likely destroyed, actually, by the Christian church authorities, which is regarded as one of the greatest losses in the literary canon today. Um, Sappho's existence spawned the word sapphist and obviously sapphic. Um, which was used to describe women who were into women. Uh, that also inspired the word lesbian. And she is the source of lavender and violet pins being used in flagging, thanks to her poetry about having sex in various violet flower beds. Yeah. There was Cute. a little piece in there that I didn't include. I guess she played a lot of her, like, like she was basically like, like katie lang or like tegan and sarah of this era right like she was like a singer songwriter and she played i think the liar and you had to have long nails to play that because it was kind of like i guess like a guitar type thing like i can imagine it. it's like some string, string instrument. instrument yeah yeah and she like didn't want to have long nails obviously so she ended up like inventing this new instrument i don't know what it was called and like cutting her nails short so that she could play that one so very innovative we've got dildos we've got <laughs> the invention of short nailed uh <laughs> musicians we've got everything so far um hell yeah the next little tale we have in here are about the two maidens in 79 CE Pompeii. Two women were most likely having sex and then fell asleep in each other's arms after being disrupted by a small earthquake. Earthquakes were not uncommon for the area, but a few days later, the mighty volcano Vesuvius erupted, killing all the inhabitants of the surrounding area, including these women obviously the city of pompeii was discovered centuries later under layers of ash along with the bodies of the women that later came to be known as the two maidens and there was also like um something written in the cave above them that was basically like a sweet like little love note from one of them to the other oh, about like oh. wanting to kiss and hold each other and stuff so i had to include that one even though we don't know exactly who those people are so cute love story I want a movie from of that tale. That was another one that I was like, I need that. Yeah, these are decent plots. If someone's listening who's a writer, get that out yes. there. Um, next up, we have Ruth and Naomi. And this is from the Hebrew Bible, which teaches the story of Ruth and Naomi. Uh, Naomi was Ruth's mother-in-law. And in the book of Ruth, Ruth tells Naomi that she will, quote unquote, follow her wherever she goes and wherever she lodges and that her people will be her people and her God will be her God. And by this point, both of their husbands were dead. So Ruth could have left and found a new husband if she wanted to, rather than choosing to commit to a life with her mother-in-law. That is like a, a, a telenovela or something like that. Right. That's some drama. Yeah. 
that um is like still a very important passage it's the like the book of ruth and the fact that people teach it and they're like it's the importance of family and it's like she was Uh, in love with that woman and you know it (laughs) no way you're yeah okay the next person we have is the Andalusian princess of Cordoba, Walada bint al-Mustakfi, who was alive from either 994 or 1001 to 1091. She set up her own female literary salons and was open about her love affairs with both men and women. We love some bisexual representation. She'd write about mm-hmm. her sexual escapades and stitch them into her tunic in gold so everyone she encountered could read all about them. The original gossip column. Oh yeah. My yeah. Smutty fan fiction. Well, not even fan fiction. She was living it, she was living the dream. <laughs> She stitched so the rest of us could blog. <laughs> yes. The first Tumblr. Right. <laughs> oh, gee. All right. Next up, we have Katerina Vizzani, who was an Italian woman who was known to carry a leather dildo between her legs. She used it to have sex with over 100 women. She left her hometown after getting caught with her embroidery teacher, That's one of the gayest sentences I've read so far. Mm -hmm. She reinvented herself as a man named Giovanni Bordoni, and she built up a reputation as a serial seducer until she fell in love. She wanted to marry her, but they were forbidden from marrying by her lover's uncle, who was a local minister. And this was because of the raunchy reputation that she had created. They didn't care, but decided to get married in secret instead. And the minister found out before the wedding and shot Giovanni in the leg before she died from the wound. She asked for a nun to come to her bed and she confessed that she was actually born a woman and she wished to be buried in women's clothing. Do you think that she did that because she was never a trans man or do you think this person was a trans man and just, I don't know, had a weird come right? like, moment at the end. It seems some kind of like gender fluidity is at play here because I almost didn't include okay. this person because I was like, well, maybe they didn't identify as a woman, but then before they died, they wanted to be dressed in women's clothing. So maybe it just like felt like a costume to them or just like a way to right. live the life they wanted to at the time. Um, or maybe, you know, they were gender fluid or I don't know, maybe they were like, I'm not going to get into heaven because I'm wearing nuns clothing right now and mm. God's going to know. But also, <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, I think we have a, a non-binary person in our hands here. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. Cause I, this is probably long before there was any kind of, um, Mm-hmm. language that was commonly used to like yeah phrase that so yeah yeah interesting. yeah yeah that was actually something that a lot of scholars like argue when it comes to Sappho is that pe- they're like she didn't identify as a lesbian and it's like yeah no shit like the term lesbian comes from the island that she lived on it's like Jesus right. identifying as Christian like right. no he ident- identified as Jew. He identified as a Jew. <laughs> yeah. Cuz that's so what existed at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And pe- the people came after that or the terminology came after that. Um so yeah, I think a lot of the terminology that we use to describe things now obviously didn't exist back then. So it's just kind of a collection of similar experiences that one may have had. Um right. but the next person we have, okay, this one is 
wild. So this person is named Anne Bonnie. She was the book I was reading called her an Irish settler, but I wrote in my notes that she was an Irish colonizer because that's more accurate. Accurate. Uh, and she was living in South Carolina in the early 1700s. She was like, I didn't include this either, but she was a drunk and she <laughs> like literally stabbed like one of their slaves to death or like I don't know okay but her father wanted her to settle down with a nice male neighbor but she said no and married another man which led to her being disinherited by her father she got drunk and burned down his plantation in retaliation which is badass so like it wasn't until she disinherited it that she ruined it right but then she ran away to the Caribbean with her husband and in the Caribbean she met and fell for a notorious pirate his name was John Rackham but he went by Calico Jack and they fell for each other yeah they fell for each other and he asked her husband if he could pay him to divorce her and said no but Anne ended up leaving him anyways and joined Calico Jack at sea on the boat she met a renowned swashbuckler named mark reed who was actually a woman named mary and mary actually got her start because she had begun dressing in male clothing at the time um after her brother died and her mom was like you should take his identity so that we get like the inheritance still so she like took her brother's identity and then she was like you know what i like this i'm gonna keep wearing these clothes and her mom was like no you're weird and disowned her and she was like what the fuck you told me to do this and i liked what? it and now you're mad um so yeah, so she went off and became the swashbuckling pirate, and Anne and Mark fell in love, each believing the other to be male. So it was like some Mulan type shit, but like both. This is oh another one I want to see made into a movie. Yeah, and they were discovered together by a jealous Calico Jack, who was relieved to discover Mark's hidden identity, as he would rather Anne be with a woman rather than another male pirate. And then Anne and Mark slash Mary. Ew, he was probably jo- like, y'all down for a third? like Right? Like, he was like, as long as it's not another man, because I'll, I'll be threatened. But it's fine if it's a woman. But, I mean, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, they enjoyed the pirate life and often fought side by side while Calico Jack and the rest of the men hid below deck, which obviously pissed Anne and Mark slash Mary off. And they ended up, like, turning their guns on them and shooting the men on the ship. Uh, I don't I don't know really what transpired from there, but Hell that yeah, was get rid of most them. of their Let's story. Go. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, next up. So Anne Lister was born in 1791. She was referred to as Gentleman Jack due to her masculine dress and love for women. She was privileged, uh, was a privileged and successful landowner who wasn't afraid to take on the other male landowners in the area. And her nickname was initially used against her as an insult, but she eventually reclaimed it and was so successful in hooking up when she was at boarding school that she ended up gathering an entire drawer full of her sexual partner's pubic hair. It was common practice at that time to exchange a snippet of pubes with your sexual partner. We You're should bring that ones. back. <laughs> yeah, that should be a thing. We should bring that back for sure. Um, in her diary, she recorded the 1894 wedding between her and her wife, Anne Walker. So Anne married Anne. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, commemorative rainbow plaque describing their marriage as the first ever lesbian wedding is currently located in the ch- church in New York where they exchanged their nuptials. 
Okay. And then the next person we have, I was so excited to include this because I had no clue that Marie Antoinette was apparently queer. Um, So you might know her as the Queen of France, also incredibly problematic, initially married her husband to form a political alliance between France and Marie's home country of Austria. They were very different people and so uninterested in each other that it took them seven years to finally consummate their marriage. And Marie was definitely more interested in the women she was surrounded by than she was her husband. And this English writer wrote in her memoirs that Marie was like looking at like some pin that she had on her um, on her chest um, and was like studying it for a long time and like was really interested and like got really close and was looking at this pin. And so basically she was caught drooling over her breasts um, and her favorite female companion was a 19 year old widow also named Marie this Marie is called Marie Therese um this is also going to be a trend that we're going to see a lot as people dating people with the same name as them um (laughs) and Marie Therese Louise was from Savoy and she was regularly regularly showered with gifts and made the superintendent of the royal household by Marie Antoinette the two wrote passionate letters to each other addressing the other Maria's my dear and ending with a heart entirely yours Marie Antoinette shortly ended up falling for another woman who was called the most beautiful woman in France and her name was Yolande Martine Gabrielle de Polastron and she showered her with affection by uh, paying Yolande's debts, moving her into a huge apartment in Versailles, and making her husband a duke so Yolande could be a duchess. Um, this act led sugar to the friend. Yeah, literally. She was the original sugar mama. And it wasn't even her money. Uh, it just <laughs> She was like, France, Pork. you will pay for my For sin, my literally. lovers. Yeah. And this act led to the French media um, actually releasing pamphlets depicting Marie and Yolande in a range of sexual positions. And then, as we know, Marie ended up getting sentenced to death by guillotine during the French Revolution. And before she died, she was forced to give her lover, the recently beheaded Marie Therese, a final kiss. Is that fucked? I was like, oh, that's sweet that she, like... Because the way that the book I was reading set it up was, like, she got to give her lover a final kiss and know it wasn't her husband. And then they were, like, and actually the lover had recently been beheaded. So they, like, took, like, I was, like, that. So they brought, like, like Seven, the movie Seven style. They brought, like, her head in a box or something for her to kiss before she died. What the fuck? I know. Oh, my God. And, like, we just don't know about this. No one wanted to talk about it. Yikes. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Okay. Our next person is Mia Yamamoto. Uh, Mia was born at the Boston internment camp as a result of her parents being sent to concentration camps by the U.S. government after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And as a result of this upbringing, she became a crusader against injustice in the legal system. She served in the army prior to attending law school, where she actually founded the Asian Pacific Islander Law Students Association and organized diverse student body around social justice causes throughout her time there. But it wasn't until the age of 60, however, that she publicly came out as a transgender woman. Um, She is queer. And since 
coming out. She's been a spokesperson to the trans community in the legal profession where she is very, very heavily awarded. Okay. So this next person, Lani Ka'ahumanu, is that the name? Your guess is as good as mine. All right. This person identifies as a mixed heritage bisexual and is a member of the Kanaka Maoli, which is Hawaiian for true people. Her activism bloomed in the 1960s, and just some of her work included collecting food for the Black Panthers Breakfast Program, founding the San Francisco State Women's Studies Department, co-founding BIPOL, which is the first feminist bisexual political action group, and many other organizations supporting bisexuals and fighting HIV slash AIDS. Hell yeah. Got a lot of social justice warriors coming up in these lists. Um, We have Jan Edwards, who's a lesbian that was born in 1938. Uh, She was a respected and awarded teacher for 42 years and along the way was married and divorced once before she realized that she was a lesbian. And then she spent her time volunteering as a pacifist before being diagnosed with vocal tremors that made it hard to speak. And she was one of the first um, recorded like teachers to have come out and stuff. So kind of a big deal. That's cool. Someone else we have is Jenny slash Johanna, who was both intersex and a trans lesbian. Born in 1862 and forced to wear men's clothing, she had plans to become a woman and a teacher. She moved to Switzerland to do that, but moved again to France. In France, she began to, quote unquote, live with other women like married people. She then moved to the States and became an activist for equal rights. Hell yeah. Next, we have Kay Lehusen. Hopefully I said that right. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Kay photographed countless activists, demonstrations, and marches of the LGBTQ movement, making her the first openly gay photojournalist. And then she also helped to find, uh, found the Gay Activist Alliance, and she wrote a lot of anthologies of gay activism. Kay then met Barbara Giddings through the Daughters of Bilitis, which is the first lesbian rights organization in the U.S., Yes, the Daughters of Belitis. And so Kay and Barbara became two of the most influential activists of the early LGBTQ movement after meeting through the Daughters of Belitis. And in 2007, when Barbara passed away, Kay donated their joint collection of photos, writings, and papers to the New York Public Library. Wow. Okay. And this next person also affiliated with the Daughters of Belitis is... Ada Bello. Um, She's a Cuban-American activist born into a heavily Catholic family who came to America at the age of 24 in search of freedom. She launched the Philly chapter of the Daughters of Belitis and later helped found possibly the first gay rights organization to successfully enlist politicians and allies, the Homophile Action League, HAL. Over the decades, Ada has contributed to countless Philly gay groups and initiatives, and in 2015 was honored by GALAEI, the Philly Queer Latino Social Justice Organization, with a Revolutionary Leadership Award. Um homophile that's a fun word I don't know what does that mean yeah that was that used to be the preferred word because it's like same lover like same Mm. sex lover I guess yeah 
was it considered pattern. derogatory or that was the that you're saying that no it was like the like preferred as? yeah I was reading a comic that was talking about queer history and it had also mentioned the word homophile and how that was the preferred term at the time yeah cool all right, next up, we've got Rita Mae Brown and Carla J, who are trans lesbians that were part of a political group called the Radical Lesbians. And they played a pivotal part in the political development of lesbian feminism through the influential pamphlet that the Radical Lesbians created called the woman, quote unquote, the woman identified woman. In 1970, the group burst into Congress and passed out copies of the pamphlet to facilitate a discussion on feminism and homophobia. I know like the term radical feminist has like a very like turfy, like negative connotation. So we just okay, want to reiterate so- that those were trans lesbians. Yeah, the, it, I know it says the woman identified woman and uh, that's a lot of gendered terms, but Rita and Carla identified as trans lesbians. So um, that is, yes, important to note in their story. Yes. So the next person we have is Martha Shelley, who took the last name Shelley through an alias with the Daughters of Belitis. She helped found the Gay Liberation Front and helped to organize the infamous Lavender Menace Zap of the Second Congress to Unite Women. She then produced queer radio shows and other published works, including the 1970 anthology Sisterhood is Powerful. And if you don't know about the whole lavender menace thing, that became like a negative term during second wave feminism to refer to queer women after the term lavender uh, scare had been used as like an anti-communist term uh, Mm. by like, I don't know, I don't know what president it was, uh, but I was also reading about that. And so then like second wave feminists were like lavender menace because lavender scare and lavender comes from Sappho. So they just were like, let's turn something beautiful, Sappho having gay sex in a field of lavender and actually turn it against queer women because it's about us and not you, um, which is really fucked up. But anyways, yeah, that's where the term lavender scare comes from. And then lavender menace. Very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So another trans lesbian on my list, Beth Elliott. Um, Beth transitioned in her late teens and then came out in college as a lesbian and threw herself into activism by way of the hippie folk music scene. Her presence was pretty controversial to feminism in the 70s and that second wave feminism as some claimed that she did not have the grounds to take up the space as a woman. Mm-hmm. Wrongfully, you know, that's a wrong opinion. But she did uh, disregard them and continued to fight for women well into the 80s and 90s as well. So we stand. Yes. And the next person we have is Diana Nyad, who grew up dominating high school swimming championships and almost went to the Olympics in 1968 before a heart condition canceled that dream. Instead, she did college long-distance swimming and set a record for a 10-mile swim in Lake Ontario. In 1978, she was the first to attempt to swim from Cuba to Florida, and she finally accomplished this feat in 2013 at the age of 64, 35 years after her first attempt. But her fifth try overall that is some clear excellence for sure i can't imagine doing something like that at the age of 60 like holy i can't imagine doing it now i'm not even 30 right 
<laughs> like, that's <laughs> <know> wild. <laughs> that's a lot yeah. of athleticism that I do not obtain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, this next person I am a big fan of, Elizabeth Coffey Williams. She is a trans queer woman. And in 1972, she was one of the first women to participate in John Hopkins' groundbreaking sex reassignment surgery. The reason she's one of my favorite people is because she then went on to star in iconic John Waters films, such as Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble. And then after getting married and raising a family, she became a professional quilter, also seems very gay. Mm -hmm. um, she also then served on the Rockford, Illinois AIDS Care Network network board and was a facilitator of the names project aids memorial quilt and later in life she moved home to philadelphia to co-facilitate a trans and gender non-conforming support group called trans way she's awesome mm -hmm. and those yeah, films really are cool. really iconic and john waters is really just pivotal for putting trans people on the screen so claps yes so the next person we have is Carla J, who identified as a dyke. In 1970, Carla became the first female chair of the Gay Liberation Front. She was active in Radical Lesbians and co-edited manifestos and personal accounts of early gay liberation leaders. She would ultimately write, edit, and translate 10 books, including her memoir, Tales of the Lavender Menace, which was published in 1999. She appeared in many documentaries, won many awards, and received a Bill Whitehead Lifetime achievement award another lavender menace reference yes so next we've got donna burkett and donna and her partner Menonia applied for a marriage license in 1971 in milwaukee they got turned away by the county clerk and in turn filed a federal lawsuit although the lawsuit was ultimately unsuccessful the argument that they used in their case was cited by the u.s district judge barbara crab more than 40 years later when she overturned wisconsin's ban on same-sex marriage donna and Menonia were married in a private ceremony on christmas day in 1971 however the story I'm so sorry does not end happy like I really wanted it to mm. because the local press picked up on the story and there was a lot of controversy that took a toll on the couple and they ended up splitting up wow. as a result of that stress. But they were, even if their relationship didn't end up being forever, they were really pivotal in that state's uh, ability to turn over the, the ban mm. on same-sex marriage. So listen... These queer relationships don't have to be forever to make a make an impact. So Damn. it's still a cool story, but I, you know, it makes me sad that it didn't end. Like, oh, and then they were together for fifty years, you know? Yeah, and that, it's wild to think like probably none of our failed relationships will have that kind of impact, but also <laughs> the fact that they could maybe is wild to think about. We'll all get like, they probably yeah. don't know. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 Wow. Okay. The next person we have is another dyke named Kathleen Sadat. She was raised in a family committed to justice and education and helped to organize Portland's first gay rights march in 1976. That's a year after my mom was born, fun fact. Um, <laughs> but she helped <laughs> craft protective ordinances to prohibit discrimination and help block homophobic measures. She also advocated for people of color and the economically disenfranchised, serving on Oregon's Commission on Black Affairs and as a director of affirmative action for the state of Oregon. 
I kind of am living for people who identified as a dyke. And I think that this was like a specific point in time, especially in like a certain wave of feminism. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Um, so on that same, on the, on the dyke train is Lamar yeah. Van Dyke, who also identified as a dyke. And Lamar's name actually came from a group of, of a group of formed lesbians who all drove around in vans, were lesbians and went by the surname Van Dyke. So there was like Stop. Lamar Van Dyke, Brooke Van Dyke, Aaron Van Dyke, like that kind of thing. I love that. She then opened a tattoo shop in Seattle in 1980 and became an epicenter of queer Seattle life. She became a quote unquote queen pin in the local S&M scene. Um, but prior to her queer life, she actually had multiple marriages and a daughter that she had put up for adoption. So when she was in Seattle, she was able to reconnect with her daughter again. And that was somewhere in the 90s. So kind of a wow. cool story. And sh this person seems like a freaking badass. Yes. Yeah. And um, this is like very loosely related to that. But I want to change my last name when I get married because I don't like my last name and I don't really want to take my partner's last name either. And Van Dyke is definitely on the table for us. So uh, hell yeah, I will be joining the Van Dyke family. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. So this person, not a dyke. Um, her first name is Diana, though. Diana River created a woman-only community in Arkansas, the Ozark Landholding Association. Women here built homes for themselves and one another and built community and gardens. Diana then published several works of fiction and helped to organize women's conferences, marches, and festivals. It's cool. That's my dream. That's my dream. Yeah. To be living with all women, writing books, that's, that's my dream. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Susan Griffin is our next lesbian. She has published 21 books in nearly every genre. She's won an Emmy, received three Pulitzer Prize nominations, and she's been nominated by many other foundations for her work as well. She's most known for her 1978 book, Woman and Nature, which helped to inspire the eco-feminism movement by connecting society's denigration of women to the devaluation of the environment. So deep stuff there, but important. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And we have another lesbian named Arden Eversmeyer, um, who worked as a U.S. public school teacher for 30 years before embarking on a second career building community resources for quote-unquote old lesbians. I love that. In 1987, mm -hmm. she founded the social and support group Lesbians Over Age 50, and 11 years later founded the Old Lesbian Oral Herstory Project. I love that. Owl representation. Yeah. Hey, you gotta you gotta keep up with those old lesbians. Yeah, it's a, such a privilege to have them in the first place. So our last person for today's episode is Kitty Sue. Kitty was a lesbian. She was born and raised in Hong Kong before moving to London and then San Francisco. In 1981, she helped found Unbound Feet, which was a female performance group aimed to upend stereotypes about Asian women. And then she started publishing books of poetry and prose. Oh, she also won two women's physique medals at the Gay Games as a bodybuilder. So wow. this bitch is multifaceted. Um, Kitty was also the first ever Asian woman to appear on the cover of the lesbian erotica magazine On Our Backs. And oh, in cool. 2016, yeah. And in 2016, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Asian Pacific Islander queer women and transgender community. Hype. Wow. 
Well, that is all we have for today. So just to cite all of our sources, these stories were taken from either A Short History of Queer Women by Kirsty Loewer, Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution by Susan Stryker, or The Book of Pride, LGBTQ Heroes Who Changed the World by Mason Funk, who was the founder of The Outwards Archive. And most of these stories can be found in The Outwards Archive. And if you appreciated the effort that we put into this episode, which I know it was short, but it, it took a long time to, to get this information together and a lot of work, um, we'd appreciate it if you would go give our podcast a follow if you're not already, um, like, review, all of the things. You can find us on social media everywhere at Sapphic Survival Guide, except Twitter is at Sapphic Survival. We also have a Patreon if you wanted to subscribe for some bonus content, and that is patreon.com backslash Sapphic Survival Guide. And you can find me, Cheyenne, at Hot Mespian on pretty much any social media platform. And you can find me anywhere online at The Libra including my website, thelibragina.com. And you can follow my other podcasts. I'm um, hello for Jersey Shore content wherever you listen to podcasts. And with that, class is now dismissed. Mm-hmm.